creating these businesses and selling at a multiple of revenue or getting a loan at a multiple of net operating income is something that is unique to what's deemed like a commercial property and is something that you can't do really in, in today, 2024, I hope at some point you can do this because my paper net worth would go up a lot, but selling a residential property on an NOI basis, can't do that today, but you can, again, you can do it for anything that's deemed a commercial property, you can. So even if it's a collection of Airbnbs on one property, then you can't. If it's one single house on that property, then you can't, unless, you know, for whatever reason, it's deemed a commercial project. Welcome to the Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast. Knowledge, experiences, and actionable takeaways from those who are killing it with short-term rentals. Here's your host, Jeremy Warden. We are live with the Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast, and today's episode has been one that I've honestly probably been most excited for. I've been following Isaac's story for years and just very, very intrigued on uh, Live Oak Lake, his uh, Isaac and I were talking before on exactly what to call his uh, short-term rental uh, hotel resort type situation. But I'm gonna let him explain it to you guys because it is extremely unique and uh, he's he's a pioneer in the space. So today's episode is gonna be super fun. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. Jeremy, thanks for having me. So give us your background. I know it because I've seen your YouTube videos and but. What'd you do before short-term rentals? Why'd you get into short-term rentals? And you know, where are you today and how'd you get there? Yeah, so I am 27. I think you're 27 too, is that right? Yes, sir. <laughs> I uh, grew up in a family with nine siblings. I was homeschooled. Oh, yeah, a very industrious family. Grew up on a farm in a Christian agrarian community. No TV in our house. Um, really, really amazing lifestyle and afforded not, me a ton. You're not Amish, are you? No, it was similar to like Mennonite or Amish, but not not Amish. Um, we, we have cars and use technology, but primarily just for business purposes. And uh, we anyway, that afforded me a lot of opportunities because my dad had a construction company, um, my my grandparents were in the community, my parents, so multiple generations, and uh, was homeschooled by my parents, which was amazing because it allowed me to explore a lot of different interests that I had. And they that really just fostered th this curiosity and uh, an entrepreneurial spirit inside of me. So I started businesses from the time I was six years old on and uh, got into accounting, bookkeeping when I was in high school, which gave me a, a strong business foundation, but I've also always been an artist. So my grandmother gave me art lessons when I was very, very young and wanted to be an architect, actually, study design, always been a left and right brain kind of person. So I ended up working in construction as, for my dad's general contracting company, starting at age 15 during, you know, summers in high school, and became a project manager when I was 19, you know, running multi-million dollar projects again another opportunity i would not have normally had and learned the whole trade started from the ground up you know as a general laborer learned the whole trade got involved with a couple real estate projects that my dad had going um, <clears throat> we bought a fourplex renovated that uh, increased all the rents just made it more efficient uh, then my dad did a couple Airbnb projects himself. We took an old train car. This was actually filmed on a TV show called Restoration Road. It's a Magnolia show. And took an old like 100-plus-year-old train car, totally gutted it, refurbished it. This is up in Idaho. And um, brought it back to its original glory. And that has was a really, really fun project and very successful too. It's been booked out pretty much nonstop since we took it online back. I haven't seen that one. That's the, we got to have to share the listing because I have not. Yeah, that's, you got to check it out. It's yeah. called the WINM 306. Washington, Idaho, and Montana was the name of the railway. So they found this old car literally infested with cats and just rotting to, to the ground. And we, we brought it back to life. But it's pretty cool. 
he ended up doing another train, like a train depot, a caboose as well, like an old 1800s Dutch barn, hand hewn, took it down, restored it, a farmhouse, like this whole little village almost up there. So I should back up. I grew up in Texas, but my family moved up to Idaho uh, in 2009. So lived in Idaho for 10 years and then moved back down to Texas in, uh, a few years ago. When I was up there in the Pacific Northwest, I was heavily influenced by the beauty of the landscape, but also the architecture and the designs. So there's a lot more minimalism and I guess I would just call it Nordic kind of like Scandinavian, sharp lines, clean edges, uh, natural finishes. And I noticed that there wasn't a lot of that design in Texas. So when I moved back here, I was just almost thinking from the construction perspective, maybe I should build a spec house or do something to capitalize on this because I really like it. I've always had an interest in design and I feel like this would resonate with other people. It just feels like we're kind of stuck in boxes around here in Texas. So, uh, the idea really wasn't very formulated as far as what Live Oak Lake became, but I did start to sort of think about, well, what would be the best way to monetize an investment in the long term, not just build a spec house. I ended up actually building a spec house as well, but how could I create quote unquote passive revenue for, um, for my future, which would allow me to pursue other things. And this idea eventually came to me of building this little village of cabins. And I was looking for property diligently for a few in 2020, couldn't find anything. Land prices were just skyrocketing around here. One morning in early 2021, I just opened up Zillow and I was still in bed. Actually, it was really early in the morning. I just got up, opened up Zillow. And this place had just been listed like five minutes down the road from where I lived, from where I grew up. And it was five acres, complete jungle, but it had this little cow pond in the middle and had these gorgeous trees. I was like, hmm, that looks really interesting. I drove out there. I'd literally driven by this place like 50 times. I mean, probably a hundred times, actually. I mean, I've lived here all my life, never thought anything of it. But when I stepped on the property, I, I got chills. Like it was visceral how connected I felt to the land and it just felt like this is the place and I immediately was able to start envisioning really what Live Oak Lake became all of these cabins nestled around the lake in these trees and so made an offer that day was accepted um started you know scrambling to arrange some financing long story short I got my dad and my brothers who still owned this, this small general contracting firm in Idaho um, on board. And in exchange for, I gave them 40% equity. They agreed to co guarantee the loan, the construction note, which I wouldn't have been able to get without them. And then also they had access to a line of credit to basically bring the equity portion. So we had, you know, maybe $50,000 between all of us of personal savings that we loaned or invested in the endeavor. But most of it, the equity portion was, was actually through the line of credit. So high, high amount of leverage, talked to several local banks, got told no, and finally found one of them that was willing to take the risk. They agreed to an 80, 80% LTV loan on the appraised value, got the project, you know, drew up some basic designs. Um, and they appraised the project as worth like one and a half million. Um, maybe it was like 1.6. And so we had a pretty big shortfall because then they only loaned 80% of that it didn't because it ended up costing us 2.3 million all in. Now I was the general contractor. I, I was the designer. We really didn't have any engineers, any costs like that. So we, we probably did it for, we definitely did it for below cost if it had just been a normal developer Of course, learned tons of lessons, made mistakes as well. But long story short in nine and a half months designed, built, furnished, and then open the doors to this property, which became Live Oak Lake. So it's seven modern Scandinavian cabins, um, five acres, a commons area, container pool, uh, really, really high-end finishes, you know, little pathways through the trees, kayaking on the water, very nature immersive and very experiential. And we opened the door in January of 2022, and I realized like, when we were finishing up that punch list in during the construction phase, oh my goodness, we're about to, you know, we're about to be ready to actually host people. I haven't done any marketing 
And we had this note, which is not cheap. Interest rates were going up. Um, it was just a temporary loan too. It was a construction loan. Like, I hope this works out basically. So we got on Airbnb and they prioritize as, you know, your listing for the first like month. So you get some added traction. Well, everything was going great. And like two weeks into it, all of a sudden, boom, one day without warning, I just checked my account and it's been suspended. And I was, it was the worst feeling ever because the whole thing was a huge risk. And, you know, throughout the process, I had really gone above and beyond. We went about 600,000 over my own budget as well. So, cause I was initially, but you know, budgeting like 1.5, 1.6, but that was just the culmination of all these little details that I felt like we absolutely had to have to maintain the integrity of this overall experience, which was going to be so valuable to uh, demanding the kind of rates and the kind of occupancy that I thought was possible. Um, and people had been, you know, raising their eyebrows like, oh, you're overspending on this, you're overspending on that. Just, you know, do cut corners, cut corners, cut corners, skim, skim, skim. And I didn't want to do that. And so, but then I was sort of on the line, like, well, this better work out. And um, so I was feeling super desperate at that point. I called a friend of mine up, didn't know anything about social media, really knew that direct bookings were something I wanted to explore later on, but really didn't know much about, about social media period. And she was like, yeah, you should um, contact this travel blogger account in Dallas and see if they will run a giveaway on you. So I did. And sure enough, they said, yeah, we'll, we'll do a giveaway. Just send us photos. It costs 900 bucks. And like three days later, while we were, I think we were still suspended on Airbnb at this point, they ran the giveaway. We had our direct bookings website set up. I had programmed that out with our property management software. And we got $40,000 of direct bookings in one week and about 5,000 followers from scratch. And so I immediately knew, wow, this is absolutely incredible ROI on marketing dollars here. We've got to go all in with social media. So again, long story short, fast forward a year, we we grew our following to over a hundred thousand. It's currently over 150,000 for the brand for live Oak Lake and ended up grossing over a million dollars. The first year net over 500,000 average 94% occupancy overall across all units. And of that about 80% of all bookings came direct through our own website. So we can dive into any number of those um, threads. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, you're giving me a lot to play with here. I'm taking I'm taking my notes as we're going to the the specific things to touch on. But first thing I want to go on because this is something that I'm you know very adamant about with regards to like local banks is you have to call a bunch of them. So you saying that how many did you go to before getting the one who agreed to give you the construction loan? I went to three. And so I was actually pretty lucky because I have a friend of mine, Ben Wolf, who built a property called Onera. Are you familiar with that? I am not, but so I'll take it's, my it's note a, on that one too. You got to check it out. It's in Fredericksburg in the Hill Country. It's uh, 12 units, spectacular. They actually sold to a REIT, a publicly traded REIT, about a year before we did. Oh, and wow. he, um, he went to tw no less than 20 banks and was told no before he finally found somebody that was, you know, it was slightly more than our project was dollar for dollar. But yeah, so I went to three and he was like, look, the lesson here is you just have to get used to being told. No, this is a brand new asset class. The lenders are totally unfamiliar with it. Like even when they were appraising it, we couldn't, we didn't fall into any of the boxes. Like, okay, are you a glamping resort? They didn't even have glamping resort. Are you a, they said, are you a campsite? Are you a, a hotel? Are you a bed and breakfast? Like they have these really stupid kind of old, you know, 30 years behind categories. And so, yeah, that, that, that's hopefully changing. And I think Live Oak Lake and the wholesale and everything sets a really amazing precedent for all that too, or helps at least. But um, hardest part of this entire thing is convincing institutional lenders of the value opportunity in creating a property like this. Definitely. And I'm, like uh it's just very relevant one of one of my mentees Kyle he does luxury barn dominiums so 6000 5000 square foot uh barns that get outfitted with pickleball courts and all these amenities and uh he's under contract on a second and third right now and um he's ha yeah he's having the financing issue at one of the properties and uh my only thing I say to him and I say this to everybody is when you're doing like unique 
uh, projects on a local level and you have to go through a local, like a local commercial bank, have backups, have backups to your backups. Like it's just going to be difficult unless, you know, if you do a house, like a normal house, a single family residential loan, they're going to pull it off appraisal value of the houses around there. Uh, but if you do something unique and custom where there isn't anything you can just like on a one-to-one basis say is similar enough, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's, talk to more. There's here's the interesting thing to jump, jump ahead four months after we opened we wanted to refinance and lock in a long-term loan. Obviously, rates were going crazy. This was like middle of 2022. So we had the exact the exact same appraiser that had done the initial appraisal came out second time, but now they had a property to actually walk. And most importantly, we had cash flow. We didn't even have a full year of history under net, our belt. Net operating income. <laughs> yep, we had NOI. four months <laughs> of really good NOI and then a bunch of future bookings too. They could see a, an amazing trajectory. They reappraised the property at at double what the initial appraisal had been. So it was $3.3 million on the second go around, which guess what? Allowed us to refinance, pull out all of our cash, pay off construction loan, line of credit, everybody, and $400,000 on top of that. Locked in a long term, you know, five and a half percent, which was great at the time, and uh, and then on top of that, you get this tax benefit, which we can talk about through cost segregation by being able to write off like a million dollars. So the first two years of profit, essentially, uh, because there are so many high end finishes that are eligible for bonus depreciation. The only reason I bring that up is the financial net result of all of this is that I have zero dollar, you know. Six months after we open, I have $0 invested in this asset. I have $400,000 in my pocket at a 5% rate loan from the bank. And I have a million dollars of depreciation to write off against other income that I have because I'm materially participating in the property, which those numbers are just wild. Like where else can you find an investment that will, will offer that? I would love to talk more too, and we can get into this later if you want, but about DSCR loans and how they do value a property like that with cash flow because you're exactly right like it went from being a collection of real estate that you know a bunch of structures on land no matter how beautiful it is to being a business with an incredibly high margin i.e. 60% that then is then qualifies for a DSCR debt service coverage ratio loan which they're usually looking at a minimum of like one and a half times. That basically means what is your net operating income able to service in terms of debt? You need, and they want to see typically as a rule of thumb, a minimum of one and a half times net operating income to the actual debt service amount. So if you have, you know, $20,000 a month of NOI, you could qualify for a loan. This is obviously extremely general, but using that rule for uh, <clears throat> whatever, ten to $15,000 a month of loan payment. And because the NOI was so incredible, it just blew up the valuation and created all this extra value, which was not fake, by the way. And I think our exit validates that. And and I love that. So, and, and, and Isaac and I were actually touching on it earlier. And this, again, one of the reasons I was so excited to have him on is creating these businesses and selling at a multiple of revenue or getting a loan at a multiple of net operating income uh, is something that is unique to what's deemed like a commercial property and is something that you can't do really in, in today, 2024. I hope at some point you can do this because my paper net worth would go up a lot, but selling a residential property on an NOI basis. Uh, you can't do that today, but you can, again, you can do it for anything that's deemed a commercial property. You can. So even if it's a collection of Airbnbs on one property, then you can. Uh, if it's one single house on that property, then you can't unless, you know, for whatever reason, it's deemed a commercial project. So that's, I want to backtrack here before we get into the specifics, I want to kind of talk at a higher level. And it, and it seems like with your story, when you were your back was against the wall and i see that with a lot of people i've i've talked to and just whether it be short term rentals or in general with business and entrepreneurship when their back is against the wall and they need to succeed they succeed 
And it seems like with you, you did that. The bank came came to you initially and said, hey, this is only going to, we're only going to value this at what was like $1.6 million. You were using all sorts of credit. You're using your, all the cash you personally had. You're using your dad's cash and credit. You were using your brother's cash and credit. Like you were, yeah, you had leverage on top of leverage on top of a mosquito infested five acre plot in the middle of Texas. So how did you feel? How'd you wake up at that time? Was, was it, were you anxiety? And did you have anxiety? And did that, did that fuel you? Did you, did you stay in bed until 2 PM? Like what, what would like walk me through a day in the life going through this, you know, literally walking around with your boots through this swamp and making that happen. Oh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very self-motivated, independently driven person to a fault. Actually, I spend 80 hours a week working during that nine and a half month period. Cause I told you I built a spec house. I built the spec house overlapping this. So I built a $750,000 spec house at the same time in four months as I was doing this other project, really? which <laughs> was actually huge. Cause I was able to sell that and make a very nice profit, which rolled straight into the, the other project, which I absolutely needed that extra money. Um, but yeah, no, it was a totally crazy time. I mean, on top of all of that, several months into the project, one day I, I popped into one of the cabins that we were working on. And I mean, I was literally a jack of all trades. I was wearing all the hats. I was even doing some of the work myself. Somebody was installing a spiral staircase. We, we chose these really unique and beautiful, um, spiral staircases, but they're a huge pain to assemble. And he was working by himself. And so I jumped up on a ladder to help him hold something while I screwed it in. Well, my ladders fell out from underneath me and I fell and broke my pelvis, which was a big deal. I didn't realize how big of a deal it was until uh, I was in the hospital. So I, I then found myself um, flat on my back, completely incapacitated to do anything with the project for a week, multiple surgeries, all kinds of stuff right in the middle of the project. And thankfully, I had an amazing team of friends and family that came alongside me and helped. I was on crutches for the rest of the project and was under severe limitations by my wife of what I could and could not do. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a crazy season. I think that there's those seasons where you have to, there's times where you have to give 150%. And I felt that inward uh, internal fuel just, pushing me, pushing me towards the finish line. But then when we actually got there, so that was, you know, a certain level of stress, if you will, while we were building it. And I had was risk, risking all of this family, uh, money and capital and my own and all this time, everything that went into that. But then when we actually got to that point where they suspended us, that was in some ways, even more, a lot more stressful actually. And it, it actually happened two times the first year we were open. So it happened two weeks after we opened, but then like six months later, it happened again. We're, we're where we were suspended for between five and 12 days at a time, no warning and no explanation. And I don't want to vent about this because I actually have a lot of appreciation for what Airbnb has done. They've created or catalyzed the industry by and large, but their customer service is horrific. Could not get it, get through to anyone. Finally, the second go around, the only way I was able to, we were able to get back online was because I actually know some ended up being connected with someone who's very high up at Airbnb. They were able yeah. to escalate it. But the moral of the story is don't build your house on someone else's land. And I am very thankful that the first thing happened so soon, the first suspension, because that ended up, as in the story I told earlier, being this huge blessing in disguise when it enabled us to create, to jumpstart this amazing following, grassroots following on social media, which we can talk about as well. To be clear, the reason for the suspension was simply an algorithmic flagging because they thought there was a false review. And so the whole system is very fragile. Now, I hope that my story is an exception. I've actually heard a lot of other stories that are similar. Maybe it's because I've told my story. And so obviously that's going to, and it's gone far and wide. So it, it attracts those. But yeah, I think the moral story is you've got to build, just like you're talking about with the financing, you've got to have those at least contingencies in place for your bookings, for your revenue, for your PR. And launching your own social media campaign and growing that following, creating an email list is so, so valuable. And that played in extremely 
prominently in the overall valuation when we sold as well. And and uh, it's actually so funny you say that. Uh, I actually did a post the other week uh, that was just talking about how I have three Airbnb accounts. I have my main account, super host status, really good reviews, uh, most of my like higher end, nicer properties on it. I have a second account that I just keep one nice property on where I can maintain great reviews, super host status. And then I have one listing or one account where my not so nice uh, listings are, where sometimes guests point out issues about the neighborhood, about safety, stuff like that. Because I had an issue early on where someone pointed out a safety issue on just one of my properties. Again, I think I had like 17 on my account at that time, but they pointed out a safety issue on one of my properties. And because of that, they suspended my entire account. I was like, are you serious? Like I have 17, like, yeah, this one over here, like you're really gonna just pause everything because, but it was an algorithm. It just, it just did it. So yeah, that forced me to essentially be creative in the sense of, all right, I need three accounts and I need the ability just to toggle on, on an account, but you don't want to toggle on, on an account that isn't like super host. So it made me create like a three, three account system. And I did a post about that. And of course, anytime I post on social media, people are going to, oh, you're deceiving like people. I'm like, no, I'm trying to survive as a business. Like I'm not going to let these algorithms just literally put my entire business offline one day and have no control over that. But either way, and it's pushed me towards direct bookings, which should be the way you do it, especially for something like you have. And because I think there's like a lot of talk in the industry about direct bookings. You need direct bookings, like yada, yada, yada. I would say if you have like one house on air, like Airbnb is great. Like, yes, you should get their emails. You should contact them. You should encourage them to like book back with you. But where it's especially valuable is where you have like a unique brand and you have more than supply of one, uh, where that experience is like paralleled across the board. So I'm going to keep Kyle's listening here, but I'm going to reference him. You know, he has a luxury 6,000 square foot barnuminium in Wisconsin. He's doing another one in Michigan. He's doing another one in Kentucky. It's all like a few hours from Chicago. Like that is an example of it's a similar experience. You should be marketing to people who went to the first one to then go to the second and third one. Um, like you had, you had seven properties that were pretty much, ide- I mean, identical. I- I've seen them. They are identical. You know, it's the same experience along the board. So there's a consistency there. There is a brand there. And you should 100,000% lean into that and create a direct booking channel uh, as well as aggregate as many emails as humanly possible. So I guess, yeah, what are your thoughts? Is it, you know, is it someone with one property? What should they be doing? Should they be putting as much emphasis on social media marketing and all this? Or what what do you think? I would actually, instead of emphasizing number of units, which is a very relevant factor to your point, I would put the emphasis personally on the ex on the level of experience which you also talked about so if you have you could have a single unit but it is a literally one of one one of a kind mm-hmm. kind of stay and there's places like this i mean there's a famous place and this is an extreme example in um joshua tree called the glass house a lot of people or the mirror house a lot of people have probably seen, seen that this. one yep crazy uh but again you know they've built a huge following around that and for very good reason so you can have literally one unit, but it's all about, and the whole kind of phrase that I like I've leaned into is experiential hospitality. So you've got to create craft this experience for people. Now that involves design, I would say first and foremost. So amazing design that's permeating both the branding, the structure, the architecture, the interior design, um, thoughtfulness and care that goes into all the details around it. And, if you don't have that vision, you know, if you don't have that ability inside of you, then partner with someone or hire someone who does because these details absolutely matter. And I don't want to beat an old drum here because a lot of people, you know, harp on design and you got to have all these things. But there is so much power in creating a vibe or an atmosphere that is what I like to say transportive. When you go there, it feels like you're in a different world. That's the comment that so many people have made coming to Live Oak Lake, it's fenced, it's gated, but from the first impression when they pull up and they see the details, even in the front gate, all the, it's like this, you know, minimalist wood, 
I encourage you to look it up online. If, yeah. And I think there's probably a picture of it somewhere in there. We're in, we're in Texas? <laughs> They're going, they in Texas. <laughs> yeah, in Texas. And people feel it when they come on site. They literally say, I feel like I'm entering a different world. I've never been to a Disney property, but I think there's a similar approach just reading about their entire uh, ethos around this of creating these uh, you know, you could say fantasies almost for people to go to. I wouldn't use that word because it's real life, but they feel this crazy feeling of, oh my goodness, this is like incredible. And so what is it? It's all these little details that have been thoughtfully planned out and cohesively integrated one with another. And it adds up to this magical experience for them. So if you have that, you know, there's also emphasis on certain perspectives on the property. So, you know, even the cabins themselves, they are almost identical. There are subtle differences, but each one frames a different view. That's actually the biggest differentiation between them on the property. There's these huge glass fronts and we very carefully position them so that you have these incredible views around and you're kind of fostering this village feel because they're nestled around the lake and yet there's trees in between them. So, uh, there's there's a certain level of privacy and seclusion there as well. What we call a landscape hotel or a micro resort. You have separate so, pods embedded in the landscape. Isaac was obsessed. That's, uh, I am that's obsessed with it. Like. So and he's it, an artist. It adds, up, it, <laughs> it adds up to this magical experience for people that they feel. And so what I was saying is you want these Instagrammable moments. So the container pool is another aspect. It's a shipping container that has been pa painted black, has a 10-foot window in the side, and we positioned it right on the edge of the water. It's this spectacular, it, you know, first of all, aesthetically integrates perfectly because all the cabins are this black minimalist metal. But then people go up on the deck, and the way that we positioned it, look up pictures of it for yourself, it's just one of a kind. And so people then go take that picture of themselves there, and they post on Instagram. Besides the influencer growth that we were able to piggyback with and you know supercharge our following that first six months, there was so much user-generated content around it because we were encouraging and more than anything by just offering these amazing views and experiences for people to capture Instagrammable moments that, again, helped propel us into the stratosphere with direct bookings. Um, so yeah, I think it's it has more to do with is this truly unique? Are you offering an experience? You know, there's a spectrum of experiences. So that could go all the way. You could engineer some super complex, you know, I don't know, uh, spa slash horse riding, whatever, 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 whatever. There, the, the list goes on and on. It could be themed around any number of activities. The truth is on our property, I think the lowest hanging fruit is find what your landscape is best suited for. In our case, a few walking trails, the kayaking, the container pool, and then most importantly, each cabin just being situated in these, this nestled in these trees, a hammock outside, the fire pit, amazing views, and do everything thoughtfully. That's all the experience you need. I'll make one more note and then I'll shut up on this. Hey, keep going. The, the welcome yeah. gift is super important, but it, you don't have to spend a ton of money on this. So the experiences I realized early on just had like this epiphany that people love to see their name handwritten. So I experimented, figured it out, and then trained the staff. Basically, they handwrite a very simple card with their name, the guest name on it, when they and then leave it there in the unit. We, in addition to that, we buy fresh baked cookies literally that day from a local artisan bakery. The cleaners pick it up. It's completely systematized. The cleaners have access to the PMS, so they can. Every guest reservation, they know how many guests are coming. We don't have to get involved. It's super efficient. And then they leave this little package of cookies with a handwritten card. Literally that little thing, which costs a total of like nine bucks, has such a massive ROI because it's why? It's thoughtful. It's personal. And we get tons of tons of comments. Read our guest book. Read the Google reviews and such. So thoughtfulness permeating the design, the detailing, the property, the little hand, you know, written, whatever, personalized touches throughout the property. That's what makes it eligible for amazing amount of direct bookings and a brand around it, which will, yeah, give it an immense amount of value if you're ever to sell it. And just for yourself, like we have such a high repeat booking rate. We have guests coming back four times in one year because we've created wow. these emotional connections 
with them through experiential hospitality. They come back, then they bring their friends, they bring their family. And yeah, being able to, you know, not have the middleman involved with an OTA really helps us with that. We can email them directly. We can communicate with them. We're developing these long-term relationships. And don't get me wrong, Airbnb still serves a purpose. In the case of the suspensions, they took it back. They reinstated us both times. But I'm super glad that we're not invested. All our eggs are not in their basket, but they do still serve a purpose. They fill last minute openings very well. You know, those orphan night vacancies and they add up to about 20% of overall bookings, but uh, we're saving, we're making an additional 12 to 14% bottom line profit on all of the direct bookings because we cut out the go the the host and guest fees and then we increase the rates to have rate parity across channels with a slight discount on direct so they're still incentivized to book directly but we're making most of that money back and creating these long-term relationships and you're getting paid on the float uh or i assume you are like when i say that you're you're get you're collecting the cash up front so we got five percent interest rates and someone books a year from now you're actually getting a 5% premium on just having that cash in your pocket. That's an extremely good point, Jeremy. We A lot of people don't think about that. At any given time, we'll have $300,000 cash on hand in future bookings. Now, yeah, we just put it in a high interest account, but that adds up. And it's also very nice to have that extra padding for any operational things. We're making such a high margin anyways that we don't have that. But yeah, it's pretty nice business. The Airbnb business model, a lot of people say Airbnb as a company was one of the smartest, best business models ever conceived of because they literally have built, baked in this exact concept you're talking about. They're the ones who are collecting all of these guest reservations in advance and just not paying it out until they obviously stay. So you can do the same with your own brand. And that's what you're seeing. Uh, the OTAs are starting to try and do like hospitable, for example, have put a lot of emphasis on their direct booking channel where they're actually the merchant of record, meaning the guest pays them, they withhold the money and then they paid out. In return, they provide damage insurance and stuff like that, that personally I find super valuable. Um, but actually that that point was something that I was fortunate that I like stumbled on early and it was actually through boat rentals. Cause I, I don't know if you know my story, but I actually 2020 started a boat rental business uh, on a on a lake in in North Carolina, and I was getting paid by the renters directly for the boats, and I used that cash being paid on the float to then fund my investments in properties. Uh, which uh, great job for keeping that in a high you know high interest uh, you, you know keeping that money where it should be and not using that money. I was just like, oh, we really got to make sure that these boat rentals actually happen because <laughs> if they don't, they don't actually happen. Yeah, I'm exactly. I'm screwed. But I needed to. That was like I need to come up with the money, and that's what uh, insurance companies do, and that's why like uh, Warren Buffett actually buys a bunch of insurance companies because you get paid up front, and then if something really bad happens, you have to pay out the money later. So he was able to recycle cash early on in his investing career quickly by buying insurance companies. Uh, I digress, but yeah, getting paid on the float is an amazing thing, especially in a five percent interest rate environment. And yeah, that's one of the reasons I have a fifteen dollar auto invest a day in Airbnb stock is honestly largely because of the concept of, you know, they can get paid 10 months in advance and, uh, you know, keep that money uh, until the service actually occurs. But all right, so much we can dive into here. I've literally so many notes written. But one thing I want to get into more like a human. So you're obviously obsessed about this property. You, you cared, you know, you really cared. Not only was your back against the wall, furthermore, your, your ass was against the ground. You couldn't move. Uh, but you still had to figure out how to make it, make it happen, make it work. And then you did make it work. Uh, I follow Isaac on LinkedIn, Twitter, and, you know, he's kind of giving right now the high level, but he's broken down buying the mod pool, for example, what was the ROI on the mod pool? And he's, you know, every little detail of how he thought that was going to improve top bottom line, he's specked out and pretty remarkably, I can see obviously the accounting uh, background there. So you were obsessed, um, you made it work, and then you sold it. I guess I'm curious, like, how's that feel now? I mean, you see, do you still live five minutes away? And like, what's it? Well, how do you feel when you drive? Past, like, first of all, how did the sale come to be? Like, did you go and seek a buyer? Did they come to you? 
Uh, did you have an auction? And then now that you have sold it, like, what's up? How you feeling? Yeah, when we built it, we certainly didn't intend as our first objective to 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 sell it, but it was always in the back of my mind an option that look, if we get just a crazy high amount, then or offer, why not? Now that offer changed rapidly as our success kind of blew up. That number kept getting higher and higher, but like a year into it there were starting to sort of be shakings in the economy at large. And I was thinking, well, everything's going so well, maybe we should list it. So we did list it with a commercial broker. And the number for me was like 5 million. I was like, look, we spent 2.3. If we could get five, that would be a pretty big win in a year and a half. Yeah, uh, we two got a half million in value creation. Exactly. In 18 months. Not, not exactly. Not shabby. <laughs> and, we got a bunch of interest. Actually, the most interest was from several different private equity shops. So institutional investors with very deep pockets that see the writing on the wall with commoditized short-term rental and see the problems with traditional hotels and are looking for what's the next generation of hospitality look like. And But they all wanted to buy anywhere from 50 to 80%, retain me, sign a contract. And mm -hmm. basically, it was a talent play. I would build them a big portfolio, but not have to deal with with banks. So it was very attractive, but I was just not willing to part ways with the kind of independence and autonomy that I had with the first project. I, I knew how important that was to make executive decisions, and I just felt like it wasn't going to be a good arrangement. We said no. And then like, so we took our listing expired with the agent. We took it down. And then uh, January of last year, 2023, I got an email from a, another broker who specializes in assets like this. He was like, look, I can, I, this is my wheelhouse. Let me list it for you. What number makes sense? And so I was like, okay, if we're going to list it again, we're going to go really high because I don't want to fool with tire kickers. It's going to have to be really worth it. We listed for 7.3 million. Everything was still going amazingly well and frankly, still is going amazingly well with the property. So it wasn't like we had seen some slump in bookings or anything. And uh, again, got a bunch of interest, had a group reach out, made an offer. We negotiated to 6.5 million, which was like amazing to me. I was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and take this. Signed a contract, due diligence checked out. The day before we were set to close, got on a call, which was supposed to be like congratulatory, like we did it, next steps, wire comes in, you know, sign this, sign the dotted line. Well, they actually were like, uh, we're having a few hiccups with our hard money lender. Um, we need a few extra days. And so we gave them a few extra days and then it immediately fell apart. The entire thing fell apart. Turned out the hard, you heard money, the lender, word hard money lender. What, what was your reaction to that? I was like, Oh, well, I already knew yeah. these guys were a little shaky because the way that they treated, they just didn't know anything. And to be honest, it was a very, uh, instructive like learning experience for me as well like i'd never gone through a major real estate transaction like that so i learned tons actually the biggest lesson i learned is we didn't require nearly enough earnest money they only had thirty thousand down and 15 a thousand of that which was hard on a six and a half million dollar transaction so we ended up they backed out we got fifteen thousand dollars which basically barely covered my attorney's fees to get us to that point and I was like, look, if it's meant to be, it'll be. Otherwise, I'm not going to push it. But I had already invested so much in that whole process. It definitely didn't feel great. Had to like get four, your, you had to get your books in place, had to get up with your charts oh, yeah. and your projections and your, your QuickBooks PL, blah, blah, blah. It was fun, though, because like on the one hand, I, like I said, it was educational. I learned about how these things work. But then like yeah. four or five days after that fell out, we get another LOI, letter of intent, from a new group that was for 7 million. So half a million dollars more. And on the face of it, they wanted to, they, they had like a $3 million seller carry note for a year. And they had a few other things that I didn't really like. So we negotiated, got it down, signed a contract for $7 million. Um, and again, due diligence checked out. This time we put $200,000 of earnest money in there in the contract. So they put all the money down. It became hard. Closing came, closing went, and they couldn't close. Uh, so at that point, I was like really tempted to just walk away with the two hundred thousand dollars and say see ya. But we we were like, deal. this is a <laughs> yeah, we were like, this is a pretty good offer. And 
I also didn't want to be a jerk to them because it was, you know, whatever. It was an exceptional circumstance. One of their invest key investors backed out. We gave them an extra like month. Again, they wanted to extend it again. It was like three major, ex three extensions. And I was just like, okay, I have had it. We're giving you one more day to close. If you can't do it, we're done. <laughs> um, and sure enough, like down to the hour, the last hour of the business day, they finally got it together. The bank came through, the investors came through, and they were able to close. So $7 million exit, uh, that's a really simple math, $1 million per key, which is just crazy. These are 500 square foot approximately units on a property. But again, the, a big part of that valuation was the social media following and the email list, primarily social media following, because they see the value of that to launch a new brand, to grow a yep. new property. You're in such a huge advantage. So um, yeah, that felt amazing. Um, huge win for me personally. I mean, a life, a small but life-changing amount of money in terms of the value creation there. Basically, almost $5 million of overall value creation plus the cash flow for the two or almost two years that we owned it. Um, and so my family did very well on that. I did very well. Uh, it, it feels, it feels surreal still. Most of that money is in escrow and I'm being very transparent with all these numbers, obviously, because I've been tried to be that way throughout the whole process. I want other people to be as inspired as they can be and learn as much as they can. And I appreciate when others like yourself do the same. And, but I'm hoping that at this point to eventually I, I'm under a certain, uh, time constraints cause it's in a 1031, uh, escrow fund. So I have six months to actually close on another piece of property, but I'm hoping to defer like three or $400,000 of capital gains on that, roll it right into another property as the market permits. And I think that there will be some opportunities just given the interest rate environment and everything. So uh, yeah, it's been a crazy ride. And in the meantime, I have, I'm actually sitting in it now, but designed and built a home office studio at my house. So it's a 500 square foot structure. I went all out with it. So it's like above That's and nice. beyond what, <laughs> what Live Oak Lake was. It's an art studio because I, I still paint. Um, it's this amazing office, a little like book area, kitchenette, uh, sleeping loft, bathroom, everything. So that was really fun. And I think this design actually, matter of fact, would do very well as a short-term rental. This It's a movable structure. And so I'm hoping to actually sell those designs because and eventually potentially turn this into a short-term rental because, um, again, I think it's it's got all the key ingredients. It's It's... Uh, experiential. It's located literally in the forest behind my house. It's like 150 yards from where I live on a, on the edge of a Creek. Um, and, uh, has been a really fun project to really just showcase my favorite architectural and hospitality features. So that's kind of what my life looks like now. And, uh, in addition to that, I don't know how much of this we want to get into, but I'm also teaching a master class where I break down the entire process from start to finish, how to design, build, finance, operate, automate, and now sell a property like Live Oak Lake and have built this community around that as well. So we're, you know, I'm able to interact with all these other killer operators around the country and around the world that are, I look up to, frankly, that are building properties similar to this in this new niche of you know, experiential, um, outdoor hospitality kind of properties. So all that has been super fun. Yeah, and you, uh, you definitely influenced me. I went and looked at, uh, there was a pond, I don't know, maybe 12 acre, 12 acre lot with a, with a pond. And uh, I saw a pop up online and I was like, Oh, maybe I go check this out. It looks like top, like North Carolina and Texas, uh, top from a top topographical perspective, look pretty similar and then I got there and I heard the highway and I was like, all right, this isn't, I don't feel the, the Zen. I can hear trucks. <laughs> so good call. Yeah. But no, everybody should definitely Isaac's uh, Twitter. I think I follow him more so on LinkedIn, but he, he puts out absolute, absolute gems uh, there. And, you know, I really appreciate you, you being with us here today. I have so many things written on my side that uh, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into and, and, and research, but yeah, I guess, so what's next? I mean, obviously, you know, your passion projects, like what you've got behind you, I see the Florida ceiling windows. That does not look like a, a movable trailer to me. I wouldn't have made that uh, that assumption. But uh, yeah, is it uh, creating custom ADUs? I actually have a buddy who um, he made, his business was 
ADUs, like uh, build them in a build them in a, a a factory, and he just sold that business like a month or two ago of uh, creating custom ADUs because like, there's a huge trend towards you know more uh, density by and and more lax ADU rules. But not assuming that's what you're doing or thinking about. But no, what what's great, next for you? Yeah, it's a great opportunity. I. I don't know if I'm going to compete in that space. It's a, it's a high barrier to entry. For sure. Um, Manufacturing. I actually have friends that have a business. <laughs> they take shipping containers. It's called cargo homes and turn them into a really cool state. Uh, well, people use them for like home offices too, but primarily these kind of Airbnb, you know, short-term rental stays. Um, no, I, I definitely want to do another project like Live Oak Lake. I mean, I learned so much through all of that. It's just, I'm dying inside to apply all those learnings to the next, the next project. So I'm definitely have my eyes out and looking for properties and envisioning the next dream. It's definitely going to be different in terms of the, the core experience. Probably I'm going to iterate on what live Oak Lake was. Um, but yeah, bring in the, the main ingredients, which made that successful, the, the design, the uniqueness, the social media. And then one thing we didn't, well, we touched on this briefly, but another big opportunity just in the space. And a lot of people are doing this now, but, um, I break this all down in the masterclass automation. So like live Oak Lake, which brought in over a million, well, the T 12, the trailing 12 P L when we sold, it was on track to bring in over 1.1 million. So a high grossing property, seven units, um, $80,000 of net income per unit. We had basically two part-time employees running the whole place and then a bunch of software. So between the PMS, the revenue management, the uh, smart home automations, which are very robust, and then the cleaning team, which is subcontracted. Uh, we had a part-time general manager slash guest communications and then a part-time maintenance uh, crew, maintenance guy, actually. So very, very efficiently run. Um, you had, you had bring... one part-time person doing all the guest communication? Oh yeah, it's. I mean, how, how is that possible? <laughs> highly automated. And another yeah. thing I would say with that is, yeah, it took us a long time to refine all those automated sequences. There's hey, always. We'll get be... back to you between nine and three p.m. Like, thank no, you for no, asking. no, no. <laughs> I say part time, and what I mean by that actually is they they only spend about five hours of their. They spend about ten hours a week total with the property, but about five of that is guest communications, but that can happen at any time of the day and night. So we're very responsive, but gotcha. they have a very, they have a full-time flexible job actually elsewhere and then can just, you know, tag this on because it's all Go mobile on their phone. Oh, got a message. Bing, bing, bing. Yeah. And, and in that yeah. sense, it, it's <laughs> deceiving to say part-time because it is kind of all consuming when you know that at any time of the day or night, you, you could get, get a message. A, yeah. <laughs> but you can do so much of the heavy lifting with really good automated sequences. And the main tip there totally. is be super personal. So it's so easy to come across as just because you're running this as a company, which you should, you should systematize it. You should, you know, put measures in place to make it as efficient as possible. But in the touch points with the guest, this is so core to just what fundamentally is hospitality, but you've got to be so personal and so caring. And so the way that we phrase everything and I guess the best, well, actually, I give away this template as part of the, the course in the community, but all of our guest communications, but you've got to be so personal with those. And um, there's a ton of ways, you know, to bring in their name. And then another thing that should be, could be sort of the next level of experiential hospitality that <clears throat> big hotel or resort brands like Four Seasons do really well is actually doing a little bit of guest research and figuring out you know, and especially if this makes sense when you're charging 500 plus a night. I mean, and to give you a, a, a little perspective there, we use dynamic pricing. So we went all the way down to $275. That's the minimum. That's the threshold where below that, it doesn't make sense because we get the wrong kind of guests. Yep. But we went all the way up to over $2,000 a night for certain nights and regularly over like $1,000 for key weekends. The Super Bowl in so, Waco? <laughs> yeah, because we created a destination with social media. But the key there is um, if you can, if, if you have you know a little bit of intel on who the guest is, you know what they like, you know, um, maybe we actually don't have TVs in our units because we're trying to encourage people to in, engage with them with each other and without the outdoors and everything. But Hey, your favorite TV show is on channel, such and such, whatever. There's so many little ways, uh, Danny Meyer's book, setting the table or 
Will Gadar's book, uh, Unreasonable Hospitality, are two amazing resources for this. There's so many ways to delight your guests with these little, tiny, unexpected surprises that, again, add up to those magical moments, those emotional connections that you're creating. So um, anyway, all that is to say there's so many learnings that I am eager to apply to the next project. And stay tuned because I'm probably going to have some big news soon as to what that is. Either I find a place, everything comes together, or I'm going to end up having to pay the capital gains tax and then sit on the sidelines <laughs> a little longer. But I'm no, no longer. He'll ne next thing you know, the next time I have him on, he'll be uh, he'll be doing this. If you guys are watching on video from uh, from uh, from like a, a I don't know, some not as nice of a of a backdrop. A construction site. Yeah. Hey, but also one thing one thing I do want to uh, uh, or yeah, hopefully it's from a construction site, but. Uh, I know we we went a little bit over here, but one thing that I I want to touch on uh, that I recently I was actually talking to a, a a broker you know who sells businesses and he says when you sell when you sell a business twenty uh, percent capital gains whereas if you you know ordinary income is taxed at you know it could be thirty five forty percent so I know you have an accounting background but I just like I've been thinking about just like the model of like you whip up a business and. You know, I'm, I'm always thinking about like what's next for me personally and where do I see value opportunity? Uh, but, you know, for me, it was like boats. I was like, damn, these houses are making a lot of money. I got to do some of these houses. And it was like, all right, these houses. Yeah, they're sure they're making money. You know, things have, you, you got to like level up the houses a little bit. It's gotten a little bit more competitive, but, you know, they're still making money, frankly, if you do it right. Uh, but what's the exit opportunity? You can't sell them. Really, the fact that they're an Airbnb, maybe you get like a little bit of a premium. But you don't really, frankly, get that much of a premium. But when you create a business, maybe it's a software business, maybe it's a you know commercial property. Not you sell them at a revenue multiple. So for you, it seems like you're at like a six x revenue multiple, which is like that's tech. That's a tech revenue multiple right there. Six uh, x. That's like, yeah, like a growing tech 12 company. Twelve x net, six and a half net, six and a half x gross revenue. And then and then so you get that high revenue multiple when you when you do it right. But then also. 20%, uh, 20% uh, long-term capital gains. Uh, I remember you're the accountant. I'm hashtag non-accountant or no accounting background, but it's, it's in like <laughs> Generally 20%. speaking, yeah. 20, 23% with the Medicare tax, all the other things. But yeah, that's way, way better than 30, up to 37%. So yeah, totally. Make this a commercial entity with a genuine brand and systems in place. And not only will it attract a much higher multiple, but massive tax savings and the cost segregation, which a lot of people are familiar with. If you're not, look it up. There's a lot of people that explain it better than I can. We don't have the time for that, but amazing <laughs> benefits through bonus depreciation in the meantime while you own it. And well, yeah, the one thing I actually am curious there and, uh, you know, want to definitely, uh, I know we've got, you know, we've got a lot going on and whatnot, but uh, you had partners in it. So were you the only one who was able to take? And this is actually just something I'm personally curious about. Uh, cause I've had partnership properties where we haven't done the cost seg and, and all that, uh, only one person can claim the material participation and take that, uh, take that loss against their income. Correct. Anyone who's materially participating. Yes. Yeah. So in my, in our case, it was just me who could take that against other income. So you're 60%. You could take that proportion 60%. Uh, based exactly. Off that, that, okay. The other partners could take it up to the amount of the bit of the income, you know, respective to the entity. So basically, it was a wash for them. So instead of having to pay capital gain, or uh, I'm sorry, income ordinary income tax on their uh, on the cash flow, net cash flow after debt service, which was like three hundred seventy five thousand a year for this place for their respective share, they paid zero. It was a wash. And you can I, carry forward. Uh, so for the next, you know, year to five years, exactly, just net it out. But because I was materially participating in it, there's seven tests you have to meet. One, I don't remember actually the rules. Seven rules you have to Two, meet. Three hundred hours, more hours than anybody else. Anyone else, exactly. So, but because I qualified for that, I was able to technically, though I didn't have a bunch of other income. But if I had had other income, I could have written all of that off up to that amount. But overall, we got almost a million dollars of bonus depreciation total with the property because, uh, again, these kind of units are perfectly suited for it. High-end finishes, landscaping, roads, a lot of things that qualify for bonus depreciation. 
And you can, so I'm assuming you carrying that forward now that you're making, you know, whatever. Well, you're actually, carrying, in this case, it forward because you don't need to show that <laughs> massive loss or would that would that help you? Actually, it's coming back to bite me a little bit because we sold. So you have to factor yeah, this in. You have to, you so sell, you have to recapture. Recapture the part that I took for the first year, and then I don't get to take it the second year. Now, we had such a big win with the sale that that's, no, that's not a problem. But yeah, you should be aware of that. If you plan to keep it... So here's the dream scenario. You bonus depreciate it, and you keep it forever. And when you die... And this applies to any real estate, actually, that qualifies. But when you die your children or whoever uh inherit it and they get a step up in basis so if it you know if i spent 2.3 million on this and we took that much depreciation over the lifetime whatever we took most of that in the first couple of years let's say i die well, hopefully that's a long time from now but my children or grandchildren whoever inherits that let's say it's worth 10 million dollars at the time their basis is going to reset to 10 million dollars so you saved millions of dollars in that case of taxes on the difference between those that's the dream and then you just keep deferring it all kicking the can down the road all the way through generations and that is how america is rigged to build generational wealth through real estate along with the fact that an average person can do a leveraged buyout uh on something very easily which purchasing a house effectively is the same fundamentals as a private equity leveraged buyout um i digress so yeah one thing i like to ask everybody is First of all, what is, you know, maybe someone who's starting, maybe someone who has several properties and is looking to level up, what is your pro tip? Um, you know, that's a hard one because a lot of people want a band-aid fix for a lot of different things that are wrong with their portfolio. I can't, it's hard to give a sweeping piece of advice, but I can say is it all does start with the product, or in this case, the experience that you're creating. So going back to those Instagrammable moments and, you know, creating those, that wow factor, look at, try to look at your property through a new lens or have somebody else. And if you need to, if you're really serious enough about it and you see the opportunity here, maybe you actually need to sell your unit or sell some of your portfolio and rebuild with this, you know, foundation and this goal of experiential forward design forward stays. But look at it through the lens of what can make this completely, not just a little bit different, but completely different, especially in my region, in my location, my state, from anything else out there. What is going to set this property apart? And most likely, there's going to be some big themes, but those are going to translate down into a bunch of little tiny details. And it, unfortunately, there, are, there aren't many shortcuts to do the hard work of creating that. However, I have to say that because the upside, as this story can show is so high if you can pull that off it doesn't take you know rocket science it's it's a lot of hard work but it's very simple actually when it comes down to it people crave meaningful experiences they don't need more things thrown at them they don't need that's like the new luxury right it's my generate our generation and those that follow we we much higher we put a much higher priority on experiences than we do on luxury and that's the new status even that you're solving for. So that's why I was saying with Instagram, it's so important to create these moments because people want to be able to show that off. It's not how fancy necessarily it is, whatever the thing is that they have. It's what they're doing, cool. where they are. This is so, cool. Yeah. Where are you? <laughs> people like to take the photo. Dude, where the heck are you? Exactly. Like, exactly. You it's, oh, it creates this FOMO that people feel. What? What? Yeah. For only yeah. $275 on a low demand night, I can go and capture that experience. Like, holy shit. Never Absolutely. don't have to think about the fact that I'm staying in a 500 square foot, uh, square foot property. Granted, floor to ceiling windows, really unique architecture, waterfront, you know, very good things. They don't, they don't have to think about that. That's, that's the details that they, they leave out in their head. <laughs> it's the holy crap. That moment is what I want. Yeah. And one last piece that ties into that is ideally, I'm such a fan of like buying and building in the country. So you're outside the city limits. You're avoiding tons of regulation, which make the building process so much easier and the operating process where they're clamping down on so many urban areas. And if the land is cheaper, you're away, exactly like you said, you're away from the hustle and bustle, the noise, whatever. Hopefully what you're within, to me, the sweet spot is of like two hours. That's kind of the Goldilocks zone from a major metro area. Yep. In our case, we're, 
in the middle of the Texas Triangle or in, right outside of Waco, Texas, which is, you know, we're, we're within three hours driving distance of about 23 million people, which is just like the ideal setup. And on top of that, Texas isn't the most beautiful state. So if you can create this little oasis that's hidden, that's really charming, like Live Oak Lake is, all the more draw for people to come there for their two-day staycation, you know, versus taking a nine-hour trip to Colorado or, you know, to, to get on a plane, to fly somewhere else, all of that. And they can do it cheaper. So get out, get out of the city, create a nature immersive experience. Nature is never going out of style, ties in perfectly with the experiential theme. How do you deal with the mosquitoes? I'm curious. I mean, they, they, they're fully immersed and then they get out of Texas. What, what's, what's your trick on the mosquitoes? Cause I've got a lot of pond lake properties and uh, yeah, that's something I'm uniquely curious about. <laughs> we actually, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a good answer for you because we have not had, strangely enough, we have not had mosquitoes. We've had like, I don't know if we've ever received a complaint. I have noticed in hundreds of times being over there one time, I think I actually was even aware of a mosquito. I don't know if it's, I should actually research that because it's a good question, but for whatever reason, we completely got lucky, I guess, because haven't seen anything. Of course, if that was a problem, I suppose you could, and you knew it was going to be an issue, you could communicate that in advance. You could provide some kind of mosquito spray or whatever. But so far, it has not been an issue here in Texas. There's obviously areas where it's worse. In East Texas, for example, it's a, even a lot more humid, and you have a lot more problems with bugs and stuff like that. Places like Alaska, there's certain places that are worse than others. But um, thankfully, that has not really come up ever on the radar for the guests. But that would be a key consideration when you're envisioning your experience and something that you should address proactively. Sounds like you really did have a, or you, you know, really a magical property. Uh, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Good how idea. can folk, if they want to follow your journey, you put out a lot of like uh, really valuable uh, tidbits. How can they, how can they find you? Uh, three ways, uh, Twitter and Instagram, but Twitter is the primary channel where I communicate all the kind of the tips, tricks, and strategies at Isaac French underscore. And then I have a newsletter as well, which is linked there where I'm starting to put out more in-depth content every week. And then if you want to learn more about the masterclass, uh, go to experientialhospitality.com. I think it's probably one of the best resources out there. I'm biased, but um, we've had a lot of success with the students that have come through so far and it's a ton of fun connecting with all these amazing folks as well and just kind of helping drive each other to new heights in the space really excited for the future and i'm also just want to take a moment to say thank you for the opportunity to come on your show and chat with you this was really fun my pleasure isaac thank you so much for coming everybody listening stay tuned for the next episode of the short-term rental pros podcast Thanks for listening to the Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, leave us a five-star rating, like, comment, and share this with someone you know that wants to invest in short-term rentals.